Hello, Dancewell listeners. This is Marissa Schaefer, and welcome to Dancewell Podcast. Today, I am interviewing the awesome Dr. Rachel Zoffness, who is a psychologist, and she is joining us today to talk about pain, pain education, where pain lives in your body, how pain manifests itself, how we can turn pain up or down. And we've had a conversation like this before, but I think that it is important to cycle it back and bring it in again um, because it's incredibly important to our community, right? As dancers, we experience pain. We experience pain often, so it's extremely important to understand it um, so that we can understand how it manifests in our body. Dr. Rachel Zoffness is a pain psychologist and an assistant clinical professor at the UCSF School of Medicine, where she teaches pain education for medical residents. She serves as pain education faculty at Dartmouth. Dr. Zoffness is the co-president of the American Association of Pain Psychology and serves on the board of directors of the Society of Pediatric Pain Medicine. She is author of The Pain Management Workbook, an integrative evidence-based treatment protocol for adults living with chronic pain, and The Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens, the first pain workbook for youth. She also writes the Psychology Today column, Pain Explained. Dr. Zoffness is a 2021 Mayday Fellow and consults on the development of integrative pain programs around the world. She was trained at Brown University, Columbia University, UCSD, SDSU, NYU, and St. Luke's Mount Sinai Hospital. And I have to just say, and I'm not paid to say this, that I have been using uh, doctor's offices workbooks with my own patients. You don't have to be a psychologist to use them. And they are incredibly, incredibly helpful. So uh, an extra shout out and super thank you for doctor's offices for dedicating the time to make these workbooks and the time to speak to us today on Dancewell Podcast. Enjoy. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological and development. And today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Dance Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hello, Dr. Z, and welcome to Dancewell Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're here. Uh, so we're just going to dive right in. You are talking to us about pain. You are all about pain. So here we go. You're a psychologist, which is interesting, but you're also very specialized. So can you tell us what sets you apart, please? Totally, and thank you for saying that. And also, nobody, and I mean literally nobody, would ever go to a psychologist for pain. Mm -hmm. Because pain, we conceive of it as this biomedical, physical problem, but hopefully we will sort of elaborate on why that's a big, big, complete lie and not at all true, and everyone has been lied to about their pain. No. We are gonna talk about that, I know we are. So, um, yes, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm also a nerd, like a real nerd. Like in high school, I did not dance, I did not play sports, I just like read in the library by myself, I was a library mouse. And then I studied brain science and psychology and neuroscience starting with my undergrad at Brown and then did a master's at Columbia and then did a PhD in clinical psychology, but the thing the thing that I always wanted to study and the place I always wanted to live was at this intersection of medicine and clinical work and psychology and neuroscience. So that's what I ended up doing when I started to really specialize in pain. So I'm what's called a pain psychologist. There are very few. Um, we have in Western medicine this very false and ridiculous divide. Either you have physical pain and you see a physician and if you could see me, you would see I was making air quotes around the world, word physical. Mm -hmm. 
physical pain, see physician, or you have an emotional, you have emotional pain and you see a psychologist or a therapist. But what we know about pain, and which I think we're going to talk about today, is that actually pain is both physical and emotional 100% of the time. So what I do in my work is I treat patients living with pain conditions, all kinds of pain conditions, some from injury, some from surgery, some from chronic illness, some with unexplained origin. Um, and I really enjoy treating youth through adults. Um, and I write books about pain and I teach med school and all sorts of cool stuff pain related. And you write very good books, which we are going to get to. So I'm going to put a pause on that. But um, I just want to clarify. So you say um, you were saying something about physical pain and going to an MD versus emotional pain and going to a therapist. When you say emotional pain in this context, you mean like I am depressed, I have anxiety, that kind of emotional pain? That's such, no one's actually asked me that or called me out on that before. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess when I say emotional pain, I mean, depression or anxiety or living with trauma or you know anger or yeah anything that you would put in the emotional pain category and I guess I I sort of say it vaguely on purpose because Mm -hmm. I don't want people to think that you know you have to have some sort of mental illness diagnosis to be experienced emotional pain you know like you can lose a parent and be experiencing grief which is not at all a mental illness and that's emotional pain and and by the way emotional pain can manifest physically so I I actually try and and be general about that um, on purpose, but it's a really, that's a great question. Yeah, of course. Well, speaking of which, can you tell us how you explain pain to your patients? Yeah. Oh, I would love to. I, I really enjoy explaining pain to people, and I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but the reason I love talking about it is because, first of all, I am someone who has had pain on and off for much of my life, as have many human beings because pain is a ubiquitous human experience and at no point in my life did anyone ever explain pain to me never not when i was a kid with chronic stomach aches like never never so i just feel like especially with dancers and athletes god what a gift to be able to understand your body better and i think with athletes and dancers in particular by the way full disclosure i am neither of those things but there is this journey i think that we go on to try and understand our bodies and you know, get maximum performance. And I, you know, there's so much attention paid to getting maximum performance without understanding pain, which is part of human performance. Mm -hmm. So, so um, here's what I wanna say about pain. It's really easy to believe that pain lives exclusively in the body, right? So if you, if your back is hurting, it's just so easy to believe that your pain lives exclusively in your back And, and to go to the doctor and seek out pills and procedures, et cetera, to fix the thing that's wrong with your back. That's normal, we all do it. However, science tells us that pain does not live exclusively in the body. And we know this because of a condition called phantom limb pain, which a lot of people have heard of, but a lot of people have never heard of. And phantom limb pain is when you lose a limb due to an accident or a trauma, and you continue to have terrible pain in the missing body part. Like you lose your leg and you have terrible leg pain. And if pain lived exclusively in the body, no limb should mean no pain. And the fact that you can have terrible pain in your leg and no leg means that pain is actually produced somewhere else. And that somewhere else is a part of the body we call the human brain, the brain, and not just the human brain, but the animal brain. Pain is produced by the brain, of course, in concert working with the body. So 
it's important to also say that there's not one single pain center in your brain. Pain is this diffuse neurological process, which just means that it's produced by lots of parts of the brain, and three in particular that I like to talk about. One is the prefrontal cortex, and that's the part of your brain responsible for attentional processes, in particular what you're focusing on. The other is your cerebral cortex, and that is the part of your brain responsible for thoughts. And I just think it's so profound and so powerful that your thoughts impact the pain you feel. And the third part of your brain that I want to talk about is your limbic system. And your limbic system, quite literally, is your brain's emotion center. So back to that thing where we have this false, phony, totally unhelpful divide between physical and emotional. All sensory signals from the body filter through the limbic system before they become this thing we call pain. And that means that pain is always both physical and emotional. Your experience of pain is never not linked to your emotional experience, which just seems so, so important to say. Um, I could, do you want me to keep going or am I getting too nerdy? Oh no, I'm like, I'm in love with this. Please keep going. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. So the way I like to explain pain is, is by using metaphors because pain neuroscience and pain science in general is actually really complicated, but it's not beyond anyone's understanding. So my metaphor for how to explain pain is by imagining um, like a, the volume knob on a car stereo that I like to call your pain dial. So if you imagine this pain dial, and again, it, you know, if you've ever been in a car and you've had to turn up that knob on the volume to turn up the music or crank it down, you can turn it up and turn down many different ways. There's lots of things that raise and lower pain volume. And there's three in particular that seem most salient or important in my mind. So one thing that raises and lowers pain volume at all times is stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I lump those together because physiologically they're very similar in the human body. Two is mood or emotions can lower or amplify pain volume. And now we know why, of course, because your brain's limbic system is always in action. And thing three is attention or what you're focusing on. And the way I like to explain how this works is when you are stressed and anxious, for example, during a pandemic or, you know, when you lose your job or if you have a really stressful tryout something, your brain sends a message to your pain dial, amplifying pain volume. So whatever pain you had before, when you're stressed or anxious, your pain is going to feel worse. Thing two is mood and emotions. So when emotions are negative, science shows that this raises pain volume in the brain. So when you're miserable and depressed or you're really angry or you're frustrated, your limbic system raises your pain dial. So pain physically feels worse when emotions are negative. And three is attention. So when you are home in bed, focusing on your pain, missing out on life, not hanging out with your friends, not working, and thinking about your pain, research shows that your prefrontal cortex sends a message to your pain dial, amplifying pain volume. So pain feels worse when you're focusing on it, when you're talking about it, when you're thinking about it. The reason this is actually good news, especially for those of us who live with pain, is because it means that the opposite is also true. So specifically, when stress and anxiety are low, and your muscles and your body are relaxed and your thoughts are calm, your brain sends a message to your pain dial, lowering pain volume. So pain feels less bad 
when you are relaxed and when you are calm and when your thoughts are calm. And, you know, it's no coincidence that muscle relaxants are frequently prescribed for pain management and why we know that mindfulness-based stress reduction and all of these techniques that target relaxation and breathing lower pain volume also. And the thing too, of course, is mood and emotion. So science also shows that when emotions are positive and mood is high, you're feeling happy, you're excited, you're doing fun things with your friends, your limbic system lowers your pain dial. And thing three is attention. So I always ask my patients, tell me about a time you were so absorbed in some activity, so distracted that you briefly forgot about your pain. And everyone is able to tell me a time. So what happens when you're distracted and absorbed in something is that your prefrontal cortex lowers your pain dial. So pain feels less bad when you're distracted and absorbed in thing. And I just think it's so critical for all of us to know that we have more power over pain than we realize. Absolutely. And I'm, I have like a couple things come to mind. And the first one is a little bit silly. So please forgive me. But like, regarding relaxation and pain, I was getting one of my biweekly, you know, little COVID nasal swabs. And someone just said to me, just relax your jaw. And suddenly the experience was no longer painful as I was sitting there kind of like chilling in the chair as opposed to tensing every fiber of my being. Um, so just one, one more small example. But I think um, silliness aside, like what I really appreciate about, um, you know, how you describe this, which is so clear and like and to the point is that it's so not intimidating. Um, and I think like when I've used this with my patients too, uh, never have I, or using your words, I should say, thank you very much. Like never have I had an experience where someone gets upset because they think that, you know, oh my gosh, you, like this is all in my head. Like, am I, am I kind of crazy? Like all that kind of stuff. So um, I really appreciate that. And I think also like even, even that first example you gave regarding um, phantom limb pain and there should be no pain if the limb is gone, but it's still there. I mean, that enough for, you know, alone is enough to make me be like, Yes, obviously, there's got to be something else. Um, totally. Yeah. I really appreciate that feedback because I feel like my goal in life is to destigmatize this concept or this idea that, you know, pain is not all in your head. If you have pain, your pain is real, period. Yeah. And, and, you know, pain lives in the brain. It's not all in your head. But if we're going to actually target pain, we have to talk about the brain and there's no way around it. But so how do you destigmatize it and especially me as a psychologist I mean nobody literally nobody wants to go to a psychologist for pain right. because exactly as you said it's just it's so it's so stigmatizing and it's just, it almost feels dismissive for patients a lot of the time like yeah. oh you're saying I'm crazy you're saying I'm making this up and you know and that's not what we're saying or hopefully not what the doctors are communicating like that's not but but to target pain to really truly target pain we also have to target cognitive processes mm -hmm. and and thoughts and emotions. We have to manage stress and anxiety. We have to talk about attention and mood and we have to talk about coping behaviors and how you're managing pain. And if we're not doing that, if we're only throwing pills and procedures at it, research shows that we're not adequately treating pain and your pain is going to persist. Yeah. So we have to find a way to teach it and explain it in a way that's palatable and receivable by patients, right? Like right. otherwise nobody's gonna ever even want to treat their pain in this multidisciplinary way it's yeah. just going to feel too stigmatizing yeah absolutely people keep running away um so okay so you explained pain you also do a lovely job of describing chronic pain or pain that our brain like learns over time so can you talk to us a little bit about that 
Yeah. A question that patients are always asking me is, you know, I've done these 452 treatments. Why do I still have pain? Or like, I've had pain for nine years. Why do I still have pain? Why is my pain persisting? And there's a lot of mechanisms by which pain can become chronic. And I think they're all really interesting. But the one that fascinates me the most is this process that we call central sensitization or just, you know, sensitization means that your system becomes sensitive or sensitized and your brain and spinal cord can become sensitive and your peripheral nervous system can also become sensitive. So the way I like to explain it to people is actually by a question. If you're prepared, I'm going to volley a question back at you and here's how this goes. Mm -hmm. So if you can think of a skill that you were bad at and you practiced it over time and you got good at it, anything. Mine is like piano. For some reason, I always think about piano. Like I was really bad at piano. I couldn't figure out how to read the music. I couldn't figure out how to make my fingers do the things. I couldn't figure out the keys. I couldn't figure out like the, the pedal. I don't know. There were so many complicated, but, but over time I got better and better at piano. The more I practiced, do you have a thing? Yeah, I was, I was going to say piano. And the second thing that came to my mind um, was my profession. (laughs) Yeah. As a physical therapist. Totally. Totally. So I'll, I'll just go with the piano analogy since it's fresh in my mind and so easy. And the way I explain this is, The pathways in your brain are like the muscles in your body. The more you use them, the bigger and stronger they get. So if you said to me, Zafnis, I want really huge biceps. I would say, that's so great, Martha. Go to the gym and lift weights, obviously stimulating your biceps. And over time, your arm muscles will get really big and strong. You'll notice a change, they'll get bigger and stronger. And it's the same with the pathways in the human brain. The more you use them, the bigger and stronger they get. So when you practice piano over and over and over again, the piano pathway in your brain gets really big and strong because the piano pathway is a lot of things, right? It's your auditory cortex and it's motor, it's motor skills and muscle memory and all these things working together in concert. So the same thing with pain. When you inadvertently, accidentally, quote unquote, practice pain over and over again for weeks and months and years, your pain pathway in your brain gets really big and strong. And by the way, I should say there is no one pain pathway in the brain, but the analogy holds the pathways in your brain that encode for pain get bigger and stronger the more you use them. And so when that happens, we say that your brain has become sensitive to pain. And it took me a while to figure out how to explain what that means. But so the way I think about it is when we say that dogs are really sensitive to sound, we, you know, we all know that that's true because we've all seen dogs hide desperately under the bed on July 4th when there's exploding fireworks everywhere, mm-hmm. right? So when we say dogs are sensitive to sound, what does it mean? It means that to a dog, small bits of sensory input, their experience of it is really big. So to a dog, a small sound feels really big. And it's the same when your brain is sensitive to pain. A small amount of sensory input from the body to, to a sensitive brain feels really big and really intense. And that's what happens when we have chronic pain. Small bits of information from the body get sent up to your brain and your brain interprets them as big and scary and dangerous and produces a lot of pain as a result when in fact there's nothing dangerous happening. So that's, that's how pain becomes chronic. That was beautiful. That makes perfect sense. Um, and yeah, that, that, that was great. I'm just going to leave that right there because that was perfect. I, but all this stuff, I think it's 
the appropriate time to loop this part in, all the stuff that you've been discussing um, is in your workbook, the pain management workbook, for which you have um, a version for adults and, um, and teens. So I want you to please take this moment to tell our listeners about the workbook, and I want to know also, like, why did you write it and who can use it? Okay. So um, I have imposter syndrome. I'll start by saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, when I was first treating pain, um, I was looking around for resources that were affordable and accessible for my patients. And I really couldn't find that much out there. Um, and again, I'm a psychologist, so what I'm doing is non-pharmacological approaches to pain management. Um, I should also say that big pharma has billions of dollars to convince you and everybody else that pain is a purely biomedical physical problem and that you need to treat it with a purely biomedical solution like a pill. And if I had billions of dollars, nobody would believe that and everyone would understand that pain is not biomedical, it's biopsychosocial. And we can talk about what that word means in a minute, but essentially it means that there's three overlapping um, things that create and amplify and reduce the pain you feel. There's the biological processes, there's the psychological processes, and there's the social or sociological processes that produce and reduce this thing we call pain. But but when I was looking around for resources that were affordable, I wasn't really finding that much good stuff. I was finding some workbooks, but the pain science was outdated. I was finding some pain science stuff, but it was very, you know, expensive or not very patient facing. Um, you know, I was finding some videos, but I just I couldn't find really what I wanted. So I started making handouts for my patients in my practice. I was making handouts to explain pain. I was making handouts to explain cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the kind of treatment that I do, which no one has ever heard of. I was making handouts to help explain how emotions manifest physically, this relationship between anxiety and stress, for example, and pain amplification, which we know is a thing, and we've known that for decades. Um, And I just had these piles of handouts, and eventually I started stapling them together and giving them out to patients. And finally, one day, it was the parent of a teenager I was working with, and she said, why is this just for like the 20 people in your practice? Why aren't you making this widely available for everybody? And I sort of had that imposter syndrome thing where I was like, well, who do I think I am and who would ever read a book that I wrote? But I I put it together and I pitched it to a publisher, New Harbinger, who I happen to love. They do a lot of self-help books. And the response of the editor, literally what he said to me was, how has this not been done? And can we do it right away? And how quickly can we get this out? I mean, it was like so validating and amazing. So. So the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens was the book that came out first, and I wrote it in my mind for for the 10 million kids living with pain who don't really have that many resources and don't have very much support. And then naturally off of that grew the Pain Management Workbook, which has twice as much information. And I reached out to two of my my pain science mentors. One is Laura Mermosley who's a physiotherapist and the other is Adrian Lowe. And I sent them the pain education chapter and I said, hey, would you guys be willing to, to vet this for me and consult with me on this and give me some feedback? And both of them said yes, which was so amazing. amazing. It was like, you know, you, you write to your heroes and you're like, hi, you don't know me, but <laughs> would you give me some feedback and I'll pay you? And both of them were like, you don't owe me a dime and we're happy to do it. It was just such a great amazing. gift. So I always want to give them credit for their for their input, but but it also helped me feel more confident putting it out into the universe, like it's embedded by these people who I admire. And, and basically I just integrated all the research I could find. I mentioned I'm a nerd. I've read all the scientific papers, every journal article that comes out, I consume it. You know, the books on pain science and 
And I just wanted to put all of that in one place where people living with pain and healthcare providers could access it affordably. And, and again, I'm such an advocate for affordable, accessible care. And I feel like, you know, putting resources into the hands of healthcare providers is the best thing that we can do because each healthcare provider has sees hundreds of patients, right? So um, it just feels so important to, to be educating healthcare providers about pain because pain education is so poor across disciplines and also to put these resources into the hands of people living with pain too, to, to help everyone feel more empowered and in control of their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, as you talked about in the beginning, like you're a psychologist, why would someone go to a psychologist for pain type of deal? Like it's, it's hard enough convincing people that their pain isn't just medical sometimes that having another barrier where AKA like the resource that you as a physical therapist or a psychologist, whomever it is, you know, if that resource that you want them to get is cost prohibitive, like that's just one more, one more person you're perhaps not convinced and or is, is not, you know, going to, to um, embody that. But I think the other thing that I wanted to say too is I think what the, the beauty of your workbook is that it's not just for psychologists, am I correct? Oh no, it was not written for psychologists. I mean, that, back to that funny thing where we have this divide between physical pain and emotional pain. Like when I try and refer my pain patients to my psychology colleagues, they say, oh, I don't know anything about pain. Send them to a doctor. Like, like I've never been trained in pain. Right, and right. Please stop sending me all of your complicated pain patients. And so, so it was written with healthcare providers in mind, but no, not specifically psychologists. In fact, I would guess that psychologists are not the people who are looking to, to you know, looking for books on pain management. Yeah, you know, it's it's mostly like PTs and OTs and massage therapists and and physicians and nurses and people living with pain. Yeah, I um I personally have been using this. Um, I was not paid to say this. I just really love your book. Um, oh. I've been using it with with uh, my teens and you know assigning them chapters and then as you know at the end of our session or the beginning wherever it's most appropriate or the middle um we talk we talk about you know the answers to their questions like what's their pain recipe or you know all this kind of stuff and um i i found it to be incredibly helpful and it allows for a lot of work to be done outside the session so the education can kind of ha happen in two places um and it's really easy to use and it's so thank you uh, that totally makes my whole week. Great. I'm so glad. Um, okay. So you mentioned, speaking again of your book, you mentioned in the beginning of the book um, that in order to decrease the sensation of pain, you must work on desensitizing your brain. So how do you help your patients to do this? Yeah. Right. So we talked about how when you develop chronic pain, that is happening in part because your brain has become sensitive to these sensory signals from the body. And, and I think probably the hardest pill to swallow, and I guess that pun is intended, yes. when you have pain is that, you know, what you actually need to do is desensitize your brain and there is no magic bullet and there is no magic pill. And of course, if there was, I would be taking it and I would be prescribing it, but that doesn't exist. There's no such thing. So, so to desensitize the brain is actually both a simple and a complicated thing simultaneously. So to desensitize the brain, what we actually need to do is expose it to small bits of stimulation and activity and movement. And the reason that sucks is because it's the opposite, literally the opposite of what you think you're supposed to do and what your brain tells you to do. Like when you have pain, what your body tells you to do is rest. Like 
And that's what a lot of good, well-intentioned doctors will tell you to do too, just rest and stay home and stay off of it, right? Stay off of it. And that's true with acute pain. Like if you have an acute injury or you break a bone or you tear a ligament, you have to wait for the body to heal. That's exactly what you're supposed to do for acute pain. And acute pain is any pain lasting three months or less. But for chronic pain, when pain has become chronic and the brain has become sensitive, you cannot rest indefinitely. Lack of activity, sitting at home, Focusing on pain is actually the worst thing for chronic pain. And that's not just like Rachel's opinion. That's just what science says. And I think those of us who have been through it also can verify that that is exactly how that works. When you stay at home for a year on your couch, resting and not moving your body, your body inevitably feels worse. Everything feels worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, So to desensitize the brain, it means we have to engage in small bits of things, activity and movement and social activity and all those things. So the way I like to teach it as a concept is like, if you've ever been in a really dark room, like if you've ever been in a movie theater and someone flips on the lights or they crack open the blinds just a little bit, your eyes, and by that I mean your brain, is like, ow, stop it, close the blinds, it hurts. And and what happens after 15 minutes of the light coming in is that your brain desensitizes and it is tolerable. The light is tolerable, it is not painful anymore. And if you crack open the blinds a little bit more, at first you're like, ow, close the blinds, that hurts. And then after 15 minutes, your brain desensitizes, the light is tolerable. Mm -hmm. And if you do that bit by bit, slowly over time, eventually you can be in a light bright room with the sunlight streaming in and you're not in pain anymore. And that's exactly how it works for chronic pain too. It's like letting in the light just bit by bit, a little bit at a time until you can tolerate movement and sensation and social activity. And just to be clear, I am not saying that this process magically is going to cure you of pain. There is no magic cure. For some of my patients, the desensitization process does eliminate pain. For most of my patients, what it does is reduces their pain and gives them their life back and gives them their power back and allows them to engage in their beloved activities like dance and their niece's birthday party and all those things that they want to do, you know, that are part of living life. So, so treating chronic pain sometimes is pain elimination. More often it's pain reduction and functional restoration where you get your life back. So, so the process of desensitization that desensitization is literally, you know, gradually, slowly doing those activities in, you know, in a graded manner, hopefully with the support of a PT or a pain psychologist or any other pain coach, you know, by, by identifying valued activities and slowly working your way back up to, you know, the amount of activity you want to be doing. Um, two things. The first being that I'm really glad that you mentioned that you know, sometimes the end goal is not to abolish pain, but to diminish and restore function. Um, I think that's a super important thing to, you know, at least mention. Um, I, the other thing I do want to clarify too is, so when you say acute pain being less than three months and then chronic pain being three months plus, and then acute having, um, you should rest during that period. I might, I might just tweak that a little bit to say relative rest because we do, want to get people moving, you know, after the initial like acute injury and inflammation stage, right? As things start to heal and that kind of stuff too. Thank you. Thank you. And also thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think I've been 
trained to to not dismiss that rest is important for acute injury and and i really appreciate your point which is that even with acute injury sometimes movement and activity remain very important yeah like you said it's all relative it depends on the injury it depends on your body and blah blah blah. yeah good point um yes okay um so another question, can you have an injury that begins as a soft tissue injury, but then after some, after, after tissue healing, um, only gets tripped up by emotional triggers? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Totally. And yes. So back to that thing where yes, all pain is real and injuries that start off as a soft tissue injury can over time become this centralized process wherein your brain is alarming even after the soft tissue has healed so Mm -hmm. we know science tells us soft tissue doesn't take three years to heal Mm -hmm. can you have pain for three years yes you can so that's sort of why it seems important to make this distinction between acute pain and chronic pain because Mm -hmm. you do need time for that soft tissue to heal that is absolutely correct and very important to do and at a certain point your nervous system can become so hypersensitive that it starts alarming and giving you this pain alarm even after the danger has passed. So the analogy I like to use is like, we've all experienced that really irritating experience where, you know, you're eating dinner at home and it's really peaceful and it's a quiet night after a long day of work. And there's this annoying car alarm outside your window and it's beeping and it's shrieking and the lights are flashing and meanwhile like a cyclist rode by and and tripped the sensitive car alarm and the car is saying i'm being robbed i'm being robbed somebody do something and you're like staring at the car and you're like no bra you're fine like you're fine nobody's robbing you nobody's breaking the glass totally fine and that's sort of like a brain on chronic pain so after soft tissue has healed the brain can keep alarming and and trying to warn you something's wrong something bad is happening something terrible pay attention do something and you're like no but but like i did something already like my body is healed and there's no emergency but so yes that absolutely and often does happen awesome and and when like what you just said at the end like where you're like no actually i'm fine like there's no emergency is is that um is that kind of like inner dialogue something that's important to the healing process? I would say very much yes. And the reason I would say that is because what research shows is that your thoughts impact the pain you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so many things to say about that. But what I want to start by saying is what we know is that negative, anxious, catastrophic thoughts like, oh no, that thing is happening again. I'm never going to be able to dance again. You know, this is going to ruin my life and my career. We know that what those thoughts do is everything's connected in the human body, right? The brain and body are connected 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So when we think thoughts like that, that activates what we call our fight or flight system. Our fight or flight system is our emergency response system that gets us ready for any sort of emergency. So adrenaline pumps into your bloodstream, your muscles clench and tighten, your body gets ready to, you know, either fight off the threat or run for your life. And what we know is that that whole process is horrible for pain. It amplifies the pain you feel. Everything tight in your body, bad for pain. Negative thoughts, bad for pain. So we know that that's a thing. So yes, we absolutely want to go after the cognitive processes that can sometimes 
maintain pain. And the other reason we know that thoughts impact the body was taught to me firsthand by a biofeedback provider. And I just want to say what that is really quickly because I had never heard of biofeedback when I first started doing pain management. Um, biofeedback is a really cool treatment that I recommend to everybody to try, whether you're a healthcare provider or someone living with pain. Um, it's super, super amazing. And what biofeedback literally means is it's the science of getting feedback about your body's biological processes. And what you learn in biofeedback is to have control over biological processes that were formerly unconscious, like skin temperature and heart rate and muscle tension, which are things we don't normally have executive control over. Those are things that just sort of happen. So like in the past, when I would get cold, I would put on a sweater or like turn on the heat. And after some training in biofeedback, believe it or not, I'm able to warm my hands just by thinking about them, what? which sounds like, yeah, it sounds like voodoo, I know. So when I first started doing pain management, someone said, oh, you're doing pain management, you should send your patients to biofeedback. And I said, I don't send my patients to anything that I don't understand first. Mm -hmm. So I went to a local biofeedback provider. He's absolutely lovely. I love him. His name's Eric Pepper. He is a professor at the University of San Francisco and wicked smart. And he sat me down in a chair and he said, I am going to teach you to warm your hands to 90 degrees. And I looked at him and I said, I am a scientist and I do not believe in voodoo. <laughs> that, that actually happened. And he was like, okay, hold your horses there, doctor. And like hooked me up to all these machines. And the machines were reading things like my skin temperature and my galvanic skin response, which by the way, is what we read when we do lie detector tests mm -hmm. um, and muscle tension and all these cool things. And I was looking at the machine and it was giving me feedback about my body, like how tense my muscles were and how fast my heart was going and my breathing rate and of course my skin temperature. And so he did a couple things with me. He had me think really stressful thoughts and I noticed that my muscle tension reading went up and my skin temperature reading went down. Wow. Guess what? Yeah, that's right. Biofeedback so powerful. You can't deny it's happening when you're getting live feedback. And guess what? It turns out that when we think stressful thoughts, our body temperature goes down and our heart rate goes up and our muscle tension goes up and all of those things are bad for pain. So you can't deny that it's happening when you're looking at a machine and all you're doing differently is thinking stressful negative thoughts. There's just like no denying that your thoughts are impacting your body. It's just like the most powerful thing. And then he had me close my eyes and he did some guided relaxing imagery and he used some um, autogenic training, which is where you recite phrases like, my hands are heavy and warm. Um, and he had me use some relaxation strategies. And, you know, as I was using those strategies and opening my eyes with his instruction, what I was noticing was, not surprisingly, my muscle tension readings were lower mm -hmm. and my hand temperature was going, was climbing up and up and up higher until within two sessions, I was warming my hands to 90 degrees, literally just by thinking about it, using relaxation strategies and verbal prompts. I mean, it's like absolutely the most powerful thing. So 
long answer to your short question uh-huh. is that yes, your thoughts impact your body 100% of the time. Uh-huh. And when you're thinking alarming thoughts about your pain and about your body, your pain is going to feel worse. Perfect. Wonderful. Which um and now I'm, now I'm thinking I gotta I gotta try biofeedback um, yeah try biofeedback it's totally, so life-changing totally um but that that leads me like perfectly into my next question so okay we know that there are a lot of dancers out there who have like super high levels of anxiety and especially surrounding injury which is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast um so dancers usually worry that injuries could potentially be like career ending for example or are nervous that they um, they won't be cast or they might be seen differently as a result of needing to take off um, or modify. So in um, the last podcast that you did that I listened to, the Pain Reframe podcast, I loved it when you said like critical to pain management is getting in touch with our bodies and our emotions, which you've talked a lot about like today. Um, and it's super essential in dance, I think, you know, in these really stressful environments um, and understanding where anxiety is coming from and building internal agency is super important. Um, in a dance world where we we almost look exclusively for external validity or other people telling us that we're good and we're okay. Um, so I'm wondering like what sort of behaviors or coping strategies you might encourage in you know in dancers to help them deal with this particular predicament of, of you know anxiety surrounding injury and injury and pain. Totally. I mean, and it makes sense to me intuitively that you know dance is such like a Sometimes for some dancers, there's like a lot of perfectionism, you know, so it makes sense to me that there's a lot of worry. And also, you know, for people who are dancing and it's their whole life and their whole career, of course, of course, you're worried about it, you know, um, an injury ruining your career. That makes total sense. Um, So I think I think the most important thing about that is is twofold. So I always tell my patients that worry and anxiety are both brain and body together all the time. So if you want to successfully target stress and anxiety and worry, you have to be thinking about both. You have to be thinking about what your brain is doing. And by that, I mean what thoughts you're having. And you have to tune into what your body is doing because your body, when you're anxious, is fighting and flighting or freezing. It's Mm -hmm. doing those things. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to effectively target worry and stress and anxiety, we have to think about both. And the way you target the brain is by tuning in. And by tuning in, I mean, we have this process in cognitive behavioral therapy called the catch it, check it, change it process. And the catch it, check it, change it process means step one is catching the thoughts in your head, noticing what I call your anxious mind and what it's saying to you and whether those thoughts are helpful or hurtful. Is it helpful to be thinking, oh my God, I'm going to break my leg and never dance again. Like when you don't even have a broken leg, is that helpful or is it hurtful? It's definitely hurtful. It triggers anxiety and stress. It's of no use to you whatsoever. So once you've caught it, you want to check it. You want to test out whether that thought is actually accurate. Is this thought true or is it not true? Am I definitely going to break my leg and have a career ending injury? No, that is not absolutely positively true. That is an anxious, worried, you know, fortune-telling, future-looking thought that actually doesn't actually help me at all. Right. You check the thought, and then you try and change it. Um, and the way you change it is by saying something like, okay, brain, thank you for that thought. I know you're just trying to protect me and help me, but actually that thought isn't really helpful. And actually I am really not likely to have a career-ending injury. Like it does happen to people. It's not that it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but it's not likely. 
uh, and I think maybe I'm going to go distract and do something else instead and soothe my anxiety and maybe do some relaxing. So, so that's the first part. The first part is targeting the brain. Sure. And then the second part is targeting the body. So what are strategies that are helpful for you that help soothe your anxiety and your stress? And it's different for everybody. For some people, it's a nightly bubble bath. And for some people, it's journaling. And for some people, it's exercising. And for a lot of us, it's having a social support network we can lean on and people we can talk to and getting a therapist. God bless that. I mean, like, everyone should have a therapist in my mind. Like, why are we only working on our physical health? We should be working on our brain health, too. Um, so, so I just think it's really important for us to know what coping strategies work for us. Like, do we need to tune out and watch stupid TV for an hour? Like, what is the thing? that's most helpful for you and and having that at your at your fingertips so I usually have my patients put together um, you know like a coping plan for you know for times of stress and anxiety or for times of pain so what is the strategy you're going to employ like what is it like have just have it at the ready and you know that the next time you're feeling really anxious or really worried or really stressed out you're going to call your friend Caitlin and you're going to go for a walk outside and you're going to come home and take a hot shower and you know, and that's your plan. That's how you're going to attack it. Nice. Thank you. All right. Yes. Dr. Rachel Zofnes, I have one more question for you. Okay. Official question. Um, okay. So you mentioned you're typically the last stop for someone who has longstanding pain, which is quite a shame in my mind. Um, how can we change that going forward short of cloning you? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, if I had the answer to that question, I'd be like a bazillionaire. Yeah. But I think the short answer to the question is to get more healthcare providers trained in pain. Like it isn't rocket science. You do not need a PhD in psychology to understand pain. Everyone deserves to understand pain. Mm -hmm. Again, it's ubiquitous human experience. We all have it. We all live with it. Some of us more than others. Um, so there, it's it's not that hard to to sort of spread the word and be someone who spreads the word. Like you're doing it right now. Like you're spreading the word. So. Mm -hmm. Explaining, explaining pain and telling us other healthcare providers that there are resources out there um, for, for them and for their patients, I think is phenomenal step one. Reading more about pain science, there's a lot of really good stuff out there. There's some videos by Lorimer Mosley and Adrian Lowe and books by those guys also. Um, there's some stuff out of the Stanford Pain Clinic. There's, there's a ton of stuff out there actually. Um, Again, a lot of it I don't love. I don't think a lot of it is like user friendly, but um, yeah, and the pain management workbook has a ton of stuff in there and a lot of pain science. So disseminating information, educating people. I think everyone listening to this podcast should go call at least two people that you know and tell them that you understand how pain works now and just let them know mm -hmm. that that's how pain works and mm -hmm. involves their brain and their body and, and they will be grateful to you because nobody understands pain. Um, so yeah, I think spreading the word and education is probably most critical thing we can do. Absolutely. And what's more, if you go explain it to someone, the chances that you remember what it is tomorrow and how it works, higher. A hundred percent true. We understand better things once we teach them. Absolutely. Um, so for those of you, for those of our listeners who are listening and want to know where to find you, can you tell them about where they can reach you? Totally. Uh, so the workbook is on Amazon. It's like 20 bucks, super affordable, the pain management workbook. Um, I also have a really nerdy website, which is just my last name, Zofnis.com, and there's a ton of resources on there for people who want to learn more about pain science. There's also links to books and apps and podcasts and websites, a ton of stuff. Um, I'm also on Twitter. I was never a social media person until the pandemic hit, and then I was like, 
cut off from colleagues and conferences and I was miserable. So I joined Twitter. It's been really fascinating and fun. So I'm at Dr. Zafnis on Twitter. Um, and I'm also on Instagram at the real Doc Zoff. I am learning social media slowly. So bear with me, but yeah, be my friend on social media and um, we can talk about pain science. Awesome. Thank you super, super much. This was really informative. I appreciate you being here. I'm so glad that you're spreading the word to dancers and athletes. I think it's such a great and important gift you're giving people. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye. On behalf of Ellie and myself, I, Marissa Schaefer, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help us to pay for SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a contribution to Dancewell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at www.dancewellpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.